0: The reading for today is Acts chapter 27 verses 13 through 20. Now when the south wind blew gently supposing that they had obtained their purpose they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore but soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind we gave way to it and were driven along running under the the lee of a small island called Cauda we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Laura. Morning, Redemption. Hey, thank you, Ben. Really appreciate that. I'm looking forward to... There's going to be a night when we get to unpack that a lot more, right? Savor it a little bit more. That'll be great. Thank you, guys. Uh, Glad to see Cody is back. He just attended the first service. He said, I've never really attended Redemption Arcadia before. It's an awesome church. So I said, yeah, you weren't doing the music, man. What's going on here, you know? So... um, Glad somebody got that. Thank you. Yeah. You guys are going to have to wake up for this morning because I'm really excited about this message. Just the reading there, can you feel a map coming? I can feel a map coming, man. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There's going to be a map today. You betcha. Uh, Anyway, um, we are going to be looking at all of Acts 27 today. Uh, The reading was just from the middle where they had lost hope in the midst of the Northeaster. Uh, and we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna set us up for next week too, which is the, kind of a summary of chapter twenty eight, and and then next week we'll talk a lot about kind of summarizing the, the whole book of Acts. Uh, we if you're new today, we've been going through the book of Acts all throughout twenty seventeen, and these are the last two messages uh, in Acts. Uh, before we get started though, what I would like to do uh, first is is pray for us. So let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we are again just grateful, thankful. For who you are and for your power and your provision, your protection, uh, your encouragement, and your strengthening. Uh, We we are so grateful for your grace and mercy, for your forgiveness, and and for how you call and equip your people. People like Ben and Cody and Iyasu, everybody who went on this trip. uh, The people in our children's ministry who... Every week, uh, serve there, our our greeters, everybody at this church who serves in some way, whether locally or globally, uh, the way you call and equip us as your people. God, we're thankful for that. And as we open your word and we look at this uh, magnificent account of Paul's journey to Rome from Caesarea, uh, God, I just pray that you would open our eyes. Uh, But open our eyes in such a way that we would not just see your word, but that we would see your son, Jesus. God, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. God, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Allow us to do that. We pray this in his name. Amen. So Paul's had his uh, trials, not his challenges, so to speak, although they were challenging, but he's had his trials. His court appearances over the last two years in Caesarea. He appeals to Rome and so now they have to figure out how to get him to Rome and that's going to be our, our uh, uh, story today. Uh, there are 44 verses in chapter 27 so there is going to be a lot of scripture reading and commentary along the way but I love this stuff. I love historical narrative. It is history and if you notice in Um, In the way the narrative is written, it is written in the first person plural. We, we, we. So Luke is with them. This is a first person witness account of what happened on this trip that Luke writes for us. Again, by the filling and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we can trust it. It's a great story. And there is so much application here. So we're going to read and apply read and apply applying to our lives and here's really the big idea where everything just kind of keeps pointing and it's a great summary in some respects of the book of acts but it's very simply that we can trust God because he keeps his word we can trust God because he keeps his word so starting in verse 1 of 27 when it was decided that we should sail for Italy so they're getting ready to take Paul to Rome there's going to be some other prisoners are going to take there with him They delivered Paul and some prisoners to a centurion of the Augustinian cohort named Julius. Uh, We need to understand that these ships that they take, they're not prisoner ships. They're primarily business ships, uh, business for profit, and so the, the businesses are allowing uh, the Roman government to use them also for transport for the prisoners. But the primary purpose of these ships is to make money, to make a profit. And it's interesting to watch as this unfolds what happens to this idea of the profitability of this particular ship that Paul is on. And embarking in a ship of um, this is really interesting too, because Adronimatium, uh, that word literally means, it's it was the name of the harbor where they would set sail from it was the name of the harbor now think about this uh, the name means court of death who would name a harbor have you ever been to dana point that beautiful harbor there yeah that's the harbor of death no it's not it's dana point but they named it the the harbor of uh, the court of death and and i think there's some you know there is some irony there uh, they thought that they were going to die on this ship we'll see in the end that everything turns out okay sort of in the end Uh, Anyway, this ship, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, and we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, the Macedonian from Thessalonica. We had met him earlier, I believe, in chapter 17 of Acts. So it's the same uh, Aristarchus. Also, understand that this voyage to Rome is a long trip. And so uh, it's, it's not like they could just find a ship and go straight to Rome, direct to Rome. They had to sort of piecemeal it together. If you're a little bit older like me, you might remember in the earlier days of Southwest Airlines, that's kind of what it was like flying Southwest Airlines. You had to, you had to kind of, if you wanted to go to Nashville, you had to kind of piece it together. Uh, today, you fly Southwest direct into Nashville. It's wonderful. But, but back in the day, you had to make a couple of stops and change planes once in order to get to Nashville. That's what they had to do. So they were, they were sailing on an early version of Southwest Airlines. And so they're with Aristarchus, and and, um, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. He said, go ahead, go visit your friends. It was amazing. If Paul just wanders off, Julius gets executed by the Roman government, but this is how much he trusts uh, Paul. Paul knew his mission, and apparently he had somehow gotten Julius to believe this, that he had to stand in front of Caesar. He was going to see uh, Caesar. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. That big island in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean is Cyprus. And you might think you'd go south of Cyprus in order to start heading for Rome. Uh, When when you see that language, I I don't know anything about boats, okay? So I had to study all of this this stuff. But I didn't say that. That's not what I said. (laughs) I said ship. Play back the tape for us. That's awesome. That's the one that's going to be on YouTube. Horacio just had to leave. He's laughing so hard. That's awesome. That is, that is uh, absolutely amazing. I feel like we need to go and pray in the Psalms for a while right now, you know? I don't understand anything about these ships, okay? <laughs> Woo! All right. Who cares what it means to sail under the lee now, right? <laughs> this is the one we're putting on the podcast by the way. You can take yeah t- all right, thank you, Daniel. So um, under the lee means under the protection of. So they sailed actually north of Cyprus uh, in order to the winds were already getting strong in order to be protected. By hopefully by the land of Cyprus, because the winds were starting to get strong. In the winter in the Mediterranean, you don't want to be on the water in the Mediterranean in the winter. And in fact, in the first century, they just had no sail season for about four months, where you couldn't even sail on the Mediterranean because it was just too dangerous. There, wasn't that worth all of that to be able to hear about under the lease? So it's under the protection of, of whatever, whatever that is. Of Cyprus, because the winds were against us, And they were getting close to that no-sail season. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra of Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So now they're uh, they're, they're changing into shifting. All of these SH words are just really messing me up this morning. (laughs) Um, they're shifting to a larger ship that can handle the, the, the longer jaunt and the open waters of the Mediterranean. This is a ship of Alexandria, and we find out later in the text that there were 276 people on. This is a big ship. This is a ship that could hold almost 300 people, and it's from Alexandria, which is North Africa. So you know that since it's from North Africa, it can handle just about anything, in theory anyway, out in the... Uh, open waters. So they found this bigger ship, they got on board, we sailed slowly for a number of days, the reason being because of the weather, uh, and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, as the wind did not allow us to go further. We sailed under the lee of Crete, off Salamone. Coasting along it, with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. So they're moving very, very slowly, and the weather and the sea are getting very difficult. Uh, we're going to find out from Paul in this next paragraph that, that, that it was getting close to wintertime. Paul didn't think they should even uh, go on. Uh, what we also don't necessarily pick up from the text in our context is that as people in their context are reading this this text, they are seeing the clues that they're already pretty much off course. They're they're not going exactly the most efficient way to Rome. They're already in a, a little bit of trouble. And now Paul sets us up for this little I told you so that happens actually a little bit later in the text. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, the fast he's referring to is the Day of Atonement, which is the latest uh, Jewish holy day in the fall. So Paul's giving us, uh, Luke is giving us a calendar reference there to let us know that it's wintertime. We shouldn't be sailing. Uh, and, and this is going to become a point of contention in this, in this narrative. So the fast was already over, so Paul goes to them and he says, he goes to the captain and to the sailors. These are people who do this for a living. Paul, the rabbi, the theologian, little Jewish guy, goes to them and says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will uh, will be with injury and much loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also to our lives. So he's going... And they're looking at it because oh, yeah, the maritime expert, Paul the Apostle. Okay, we're going to listen to what you, you slept at a Holiday Inn Express last night, obviously, so you know what you're talking about now. So they go, ah, thanks for your advice. Now, hang on. We do know at this time, Paul has already written First and Second Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians, he says he's been shipwrecked three different times during his ministry. So maybe he does know a little bit about this stuff. Also, Paul's connected to God; he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's doing what the Spirit is calling and directing him to do. So he might have an inside line uh, in regard to that as well. But the centurion paid no attention; paid more, I'm sorry, more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to, to what Paul said. And because this, I love this, because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in. They're looking around at Fairhavens going, really? We've got to spend four months? now, and we're not going to do this. There's a place on the other side, just 50 miles away, called Phoenix, ironically enough. That's a really cool place. We're going to try and get there. So on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Um, The the port of Crete, I mean, I'm sorry, Phoenix at that time, was much better than Fair Havens, a lot better uh, uh, um, economy and things to do, but also it was positioned on the island that it would protect them from the weather that they were going to eventually experience in the middle of the Mediterranean too. And that's why they wanted to get there. And they're thinking, it's just 50 miles. We we can easily make that, especially on this much larger ship. Now, there is some tension here that I want to point out that I think is important for us to maybe try to grasp. Um, it's this idea that, really, they should have listened to Paul. Even though he's not a maritime expert, they should have listened to Paul. Hey, I understand why they didn't, okay? You're an expert in something, and somebody who has no training in it comes and tries to tell you what to do. That's a little bit hard to swallow. I get that. I understand why they didn't. The problem is, is that when God speaks, even God has power and control and understanding over the great maritime experts. So you can be a captain, you can be a sailor. God is the creator of that sea in which you're even sailing on. He's the creator of the wind. He's the creator of the world. So he has, he has power and authority over that. So when Paul speaks, we should listen to him. I'm sorry, when God speaks, he should listen to him. In this case, they should have listened to Paul. There's tension there, though, Because I also feel like I need to say this. Uh, Just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're always right. I didn't get an amen there. I'm a little, you know. Just because we're Christians doesn't always mean we're right. And And the problem there is that you and I have the word of God. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. But we're also corrupted still, unfortunately, by sin. And so it's very often... Uh, it's very, it's, it happens often enough. It's happened to me. In my drive to do what I think is best and to fulfill my agenda and my desires, I'll lay that off on God and say that it's him. And I'll tell you what, you can spiritualize almost anything, amen, and make it sound right. And so we have to be really careful. Now God has spoken very clearly on many things. There are some things where we're not—we're never going to. Que- we should never question, it. even though culture's questioning it all. We would never question it. But we also need to remember: we got to test the spirits, man. We have got to test the spirits and make sure that our hearts are right. And that can't be done uh, in solitude. We have to do that with a community and with with wise counselors. And advisors in the midst of that. So 13 through20, the passage that Laura read to us this morning. Now when the south wind blew gently, so here they are, they're standing there and they're going, "Oh, the winds have died down. We can make Phoenix." When the south winds were blowing gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. A northeaster is a common, violent, dangerous storm that um, uh, that 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 occurs in the Mediterranean during the winter months. It is it is a tough and difficult storm to try to negotiate your way through, and and one of the one two of the characteristics about number one, they come up like that, with no warning. And so this is, this is exactly like what it's like on the Mediterranean. They look out and they say, everything's fine. I'm telling you, five minutes later, they can be in so much trouble that they cannot even turn back. That's how quickly it'll come upon. And, and the reason is because what's happening is you have colliding wind currents that create all of this violence on, on the sea. By the way, they can stop just as quickly as they started, especially when Jesus is around. Amen? But the other thing about them is that they can last for days and days and days and days. It's like the Hurricane uh, Irma that hit uh, Texas, the way it just sort of hung over Houston for all of those days. It it didn't pass through. It just hung. And it can do that. And we're going to see that this thing lasted for days and days and days and days. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. How does that feel? You're in charge of a ship. You control the ship. You know how to sail that ship and direct that ship, but the winds were so strong, there's nothing you can do. You got to go, all right, man, it's yours. That doesn't feel very good, does it? But that's what happened to them. They had to just let it go. And running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. The ship's boat is uh, serves two purposes. It's a lifeboat, so if If they crack up the ship, they can jump in that and hopefully get to shore. But also, because the ship was so large, it it was a boat that helped get you from the ship to shore or from the shore to ship if they couldn't find a harbor that was deep enough to be able to get the ship in there. So they wanted to make sure that they were able to secure the lifeboat. Um, After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Again, I don't know anything about ships or shipping or anything like that. When I first read this, I was confused. I thought, wouldn't the weight of the cargo help make the ship steadier? Wouldn't they want the weight of the cargo? And the answer is no. What you want when the winds are bad and the waves are big is actually more buoyancy. You want to let the ocean or the sea have more control over the ship. So you jettison the cargo and anything that weighs anything to give it more buoyancy. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days and no small small tempest lay upon us. In other words, it was a big honking storm. uh, All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. All hope of their being saved was at last abandoned. This idea of the stars and the sun, they could not, for 14 days, they could not see the sky. So today, uh, we have airplanes that you can fly in the midst of clouds. You can see absolutely nothing, but you can fly by instrument, right? Okay? And you rely on those instruments. Uh, For people who were navigating ships in the first century, their instruments were, were, were they were in the sky, the sun, the stars, the moon. That's how they knew how to get places and where they were going. They couldn't see anything. They had no idea whatsoever where they were. So they were flying without instruments and had no idea. So you look at the map now. If you can find the one that's the map. There you go. So they start down here. And they sail to Sidon. They go up here under the lee of Cyprus. They go here to Mira, They change Ships. This is now the ship from Alexandria. There's, by the way, there's Alexandria down there. So they change ships to, uh, to the Alexandrian ship. They get down here, and this is where they're in Fairhavens, and they're saying, we want to just get here to Phoenix. That's all we want to do. And this is what happens to them. This is the 14 days. This is 700 miles. This is 50 miles right here. They had no idea where they were. And actually, think about where they could have been. Uh, God really helped them out to to, to get here. By the way, there's Sicily. That's where Vito Corleone is from. That's an important detail too. So if you're a Godfather fan. Um, So it's really interesting. They have lost hope. And that's where we left the reading. And I wanted it to be left there. But this is now where Paul steps up. Think about it. They're starting to lose their cargo. They're starting to lose all the business purposes, all the worldly purposes, all the marketing purposes for which the the ship existed. And now Paul steps up, and he begins to show his leadership. And understand, verse 21, he says, you should have listened to me. He's not saying, I told you so. He's not. What he's doing is he's saying, you should have listened to me. Now you really need to listen to me. I established my credibility, right? Now you really need to listen to me. And listen to what uh, he says. So 21 through 26. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now, I urge you to take heart. Uh, Literally, what that means is have courage... And place your hope, not in a worldly hope, but in a hope that delivers. And I'm going to tell you about that hope because it's coming from my God. This is not a worldly hope. This is not a chance. This is not a maybe. I want you to take heart. Be of good courage because our hope now is in what God has told me. The one true God has told me. I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So now the captain's going, oh, great. I'm going to live, but the ship's going to be lost. For this very night there stood before me an angel of of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Think about this. This ship really should have been lost. But there was a greater purpose on that ship. As simple as this, that Paul had to stand before Caesar. That's it that's it. He says, all right, we're going to make it. Your your cargo isn't, but we're going to make it. Your ship isn't, but we're going to make it because I'm supposed to stand before Caesar and plead my case. It's fascinating how God works here. And behold, God has granted you all those uh, who sail with you. So take heart, men. There it is again. Be of good courage, for I have faith in God, that it is exactly as I have been told. But We must run aground on some island. So it's not going to be easy. This is going to be very, very difficult. So Paul establishes his credibility. He's not lording this over them. And then he's saying, I have a hope that we know will deliver us. It is the faithful and trustworthy promise of my God and my Savior, the message delivered by his angels. And we can trust that. We can trust God. Because he's trustworthy. It's interesting, he mentions this in here. We talk about how Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Uh, The vast majority of it, we love that Savior part. But some of us struggle with that Lord part, don't we? We're glad that we're going to be delivered. But we struggle with that idea that in the meantime, we need to submit to him and listen to him. And here you go, and trust him. But we can because he is worthy of our trust. He's faithful to us even when we don't feel like he is. And so we can trust him. And, and all, all the people on board this ship, other than maybe the other prisoners, they are all going to have a lose-everything trip except Paul. Paul's the only one who's going to gain anything out of this trip. And remember, this is a business ship. Yet Paul, for his purpose, because it's God's purpose, is going to be fulfilled. And I know you and I have had life situations that have been absolutely disastrous. And we have no idea why it's happening. We don't want it to happen. And we question God the whole time that it's happening. We even shake our fists and get angry with God. We have psalms where uh, the writers of the psalms shake their fist at God. Why am I going through this? And yet for his good and faithful purpose, he leads us through these things. And that's why it's called faith. That word faith in the New Testament is the same word that we translate as trust. It's the same Greek word, faith and trust, faith and trust. In the Gospel of John, it's the same word that we translate as believe. So faith, trust, believe. Faith, trust, and believe. It's why some of us might remember, we used to sing an old hymn called Trust and Obey. Anybody remember that hymn? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. We don't sing that hymn anymore. Trust and obey, those are are tough words, especially that obey one in our context. I was reading last spring a wonderful book by Rick Lawrence who talks about um, he talks about the good and holy character of God, but he also talks about how God is shrewd. I, rem- I don't know if you remember, but in, in, at the end of May, I actually preached a message on this idea of shrewdness. It's a hard word for us as Christians. Should we be shrewd? Doesn't that, that kind of sound like sneaky or tricky or whatever? But God is shrewd. Uh, Rick named his uh, book that he wrote. Very clever title. It's just called Shrewd. It's very good. But in the midst of the book, he, he started talking at great length about the need to be able to trust God and why we should trust him. And, and, he, and he relates this dream, this almost a nightmare that he has in the experience. And it's kind of a long uh, passage, but I want to read it to you because I think it, it embodies what we're trying to talk about here. He says this, In my dream, I was on a raging river. I was being pulled down a whitewater rapid that was thrashing and torrential. And I was thinking, I am about to die. I was aware of being full of fear. In my thrashing about, trying to stay afloat, my wrist hit something. And I grabbed it. It turned out to be a pool ladder ladder handle sticking way out into the river from the bank. Remember, this is a dream, so there's things that aren't, you know, there's non-sequiturs in the dream. So pool ladder handle. So he grabs the pool ladder handle. I pulled myself from the river, exhausted. I looked back at the river thinking, that was lucky I would have died. Then I woke up. Adrenaline was pulsing through me and my heart was pounding, so I just got up 3.30 in the morning and I prayed. While I was praying, I heard by faith, the Spirit speak into my spirit. What did you think of the dream? And I answered, it was fortunate the ladder handle was there and I was able to get out and save my life. God spoke to me again right then. What if I told you the river is me? What if I told you the river is me? That stunned me at first. And then I said, God, if the river is you, I want all of you. I am willing and will jump back in. Bring it on. I will trust you for wherever you take me and however you get me there. I am going to trust you and enjoy the ride. And so I jump back into the river. That's trust. Because God keeps his word. He's trustworthy. Later in that chapter, Lawrence adds this. He says, you and I are all kindreds with the Israelites. You know, the Israelites are in Egypt. They were in slavery under oppression. They're begging God to be released from Egypt. So Moses leads them out into the wilderness And they're out in the wilderness for like what, 15 minutes, and what happens? They start whining and complaining. They want to go back and there's no cucumbers out here. Apparently, they were Arcadians, you know, they're vegetarians, you know. No cucumbers out here, no leeks. I want to go back and I'm okay being in bondage. So they begged for the familiar bondage of their Egyptian masters over the unpredictable freedom offered by their Creator. You know what our problem is? Well, my problem is, I look at what I think is bondage, which is God's love and mercy and joy, and I, and I see bondage, and I, and I, I kind of push back against that because I want freedom. I want to be able to do whatever I want, and I mistake freedom for bondage and bondage for freedom. What does Paul say in First and Second Corinthians? He says, the love of Christ constrains us. Oh, I don't want to be constrained. Yeah, we do because that's where genuine freedom is. It's the freedom to live with God and to do what he calls us to do and to be filled with his spirit. That's the beauty of our relationship with God. We are constantly mistaking bondage for freedom and freedom for bondage. Paul says, by the way, there's good news and bad news. We're going to survive, but the ship isn't. Verses 27 through 33. When the 14th night had come. Here you go. 14 days and nights of this on a ship that they don't know where they are and they can't track. How many of you have been on a commercial airline flight? You're not real good with turbulence. I'm kind of nervous about turbulence. And it's, and it's bumpy, you know. It's 15 minutes. And you're like, this feels like three days, Okay. They did this for 14 days. Can you imagine that? And as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected we were nearing land. They're experienced, so they took a sounding, and they found 20 fathoms. So the, the, the floor of the sea of the Mediterranean Sea was about 20 fathoms down. They took a sounding. And then a little bit later, they take another sounding, and it's 15 fathoms. So they're getting closer to land. They know they're getting closer to shore. But it's, but it's at night, so they can't see anything. Verse 29, And fearing that we might run, ag- run on the rocks, they let down the four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come, so that maybe they could see the land. So they're going to wait. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, this is the crew now going, here's our chance to escape, okay? As they were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So here's the crew. The crew knows they're in trouble. And and they here you go. This is what's interesting about the crew. Now they're trusting in their own wisdom and not the wisdom of of the God of Paul. Paul has come to them and said, the the, the God whom I serve and I trust, the creator God of this whole universe, has said, we're going to survive, and they're going, I'm going to trust in my own wisdom instead. How many of us do that? And that's when I get into trouble, even though sometimes it's more comfortable, they're going to trust in their own wisdom. They're going to trust in these little boats rather than in the God of the universe. By the way, so Paul talks to the centurion and they say, go, go, go cut the boat loose. So now they're out there in the sea like this and, and, the, and the centurion and the soldiers come and they cut the, the ropes and then the boat's sailing away and the crew's sitting there going, oh, there goes our lifeboat. Now they're stuck though. But it turns out okay for them turns out by the way they're way past phoenix now way past 50 miles and they have that simultaneous joy and and threat of land yeah we need to get close to land but now the land is actually a threat because we could run aground we have to be really really careful and the crew knew this and so the crew decided well if we can get away we're going to try to but but also god has promised that they're going to make it so did they really need the crew God promised them they're going to survive, they're going to live. Why did Paul go to the centurion and say, unless they stay, we're not going to make it? Why? That seems contradictory, not necessarily. We need to remember that God's promises do not negate the importance of human actions. God's promises do not negate the importance of human actions. Is God more powerful than human actions? Yes. Can God have things exactly his way in spite of us? Yes, whenever he wants. But read your Bible. The vast majority of the time, he is working in a faith and trust relationship with us as he calls us and fills us with his Holy Spirit and equips us to do his work. We are working in partnership. We are called to do God's work God's way. And so God's promises work with the trust and obedience of humans. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. 33 through 38. And as the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day. You've continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the... So they had saved the wheat, now they're throwing the wheat out. Now everything is off the ship except the people. And again, the closer they get to land... The higher they need to ride on the water, they need more buoyancy, so they need less weight on, on the ship because there might be rocks that they can't see just under the surface of the water, or a reef, which is actually where they ended up um, hitting. So you see, again, Paul seizes the moment, and in the midst of it, he again witnesses uh, to the gospel and to God in the midst of the calamity. I will tell you some of the best testimonies I have ever heard from God's people From followers of Christ have not been in bad times, but have been in the worst times. Uh, As a pastor, uh, I've walked with many people through uh, not just the valley of the shadow of death, but the actual death experience itself with many, many people, sitting at their bedside for sometimes weeks or months. And some of the greatest testimonies of of faith have come in those times. Uh, Back at the the church I led for a while, uh, maybe 15 years ago, I had a good friend named Larry Hampton. Uh, at the time, he was 62, and th- this guy apparently had a really high threshold for pain. Um, he, he started feeling pain in his chest and his back and, and and stuff, and but he just kept kept working, kept shrugging it off, and and finally, he and his wife Janet one day were were getting ready to go up to Payson for the weekend, and they were loading the car. And he sat down in the living room at one point, and Janet thought, where where did Larry go? So she goes in, and and he just looks at her. He says, I can't can't move. I can't go. I'm not going to be able to go. And I'm in so much pain that I think I really need to go to the hospital. So she got him into the car and took him to the hospital. A couple days later, they gave him the news. They said, first of all, we don't know how you waited this long to come in. You must have a really high tolerance for pain. But your entire body is racked with cancer, and you're going to live maybe another month. He lived about five weeks, and 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 sitting with him at his bedside, you would if this sixty-two, successful guy, wonderful family. You'd think there'd be some bitterness and resentment in the midst of that. And the whole time I'm sitting with him, and other people said the same thing. All he did was just talk about the faithfulness of God and how he was blessed and what a great life he lived. It, it was it was it was just. Amazing the testimony. Five years ago, um we were looking around and, and realized we didn't have a deacon board. And none of the redemption churches had a deacon board. And we thought, we should probably have a deacon board. And then we started asking ourselves this question. Um, Redemption uh, Redemption Arcadia five years ago, very similar to it is today. Demographically, we were young and healthy. That's kind of what we are today. We took that survey recently, which someday we'll report the results to you. But um, 54% of the adults who attend here are between the ages of 25 and 34. This is a young church, Okay. And, and so we're looking around, we're going, we should probably have a deacon board, and people are saying, but nobody, nobody's ever in the hospital, nobody dies. I've done like four funerals in six years here. I used, to, I used to do ten funerals a year at my last church. I do a lot of weddings, though. That's, that's cool. Um, what, do we, what do we need a deacon board for? we got to be ready. we got to be ready, because eventually we will need it. People are going to go into the hospital, we're going to have funerals, things are going to happen. And so we started assembling the deacon board, and one of the women that we called uh, to the deacon board was a woman named Joyce Campbell. I don't know if any of you were around when she was around. Single woman, 50 years old, w- w- just a wonderful woman. We called her onto the deacon board. She was uh, served just with great joy for three months, and then she was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And nine months later, she died, and it was amazing. We created this deacon board for her so that we could walk with her and she when she was dying she used to tell that story and she used to attribute that to the faithfulness of God in her life that you can trust God and again 50 years old wonderful job neat lady not a not a bitter resentful bone in her body just great 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 testimonies And and one last thing about this paragraph before we finish the last paragraph. I know, because I've been around, this scene here where Paul breaks the bread and eats, some people can kind of juice that up to look like a recreation of the Lord's Supper. It really isn't. He didn't serve communion there. What we need to remember, we we don't understand this probably because of the context we live in, but what we need to remember is that every meal pretty much was bread. That's what they ate. Practically every meal. So it wasn't like, I'm going to find some bread. No, no. That's what they ate. In fact, a common breakfast in the first century, as I've read, was that you would take a piece of bread and dip it in wine as you're walking out the door to work. So it's kind of like, you know, toast and jelly. <laughs> um, but that, that's what they would eat. And then they'd have bread for lunch, and then they would have sort of a bread loaf for dinner, I guess. I don't know, a form of meatloaf or something. But that's what they ate. And it was common for people to give thanks to their God. Whatever it was that they worshipped, their God. So that was common, too. And Paul is giving thanks to his God, the one true God, because Jesus has proven worthy of his trust. So verses 39 through 44, the shipwreck. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them at sea. So now that's it. This is it. Whatever happens, happens. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained uh, immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them would uh, swim away and escape, because if they lost a prisoner, they would be executed. So they thought, we'll just kill them first, But, but watch what happens. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. The centurion is, is now really attached to Paul. So he says, don't kill the prisoners. Instead, he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and, and, and the rest on, on planks or on pieces of the ship if you can't swim. And so it was that all, 276, were brought to safety. Everything on the ship was destroyed except the gospel and its proclamation. It's the only thing that survived. And and it's not that work and business are bad. I am not saying that. It's good. God created us for work. God created us for the marketplace. But it's also temporal. It's not the ultimate thing. It's not the most important thing. And this turns out well, right? It's a happy ending. Come on, show me your happy ending faces. Okay. This is kind of interesting Life doesn't always turn out that way, does it? It, it? it doesn't always turn out well. If this had been a Netflix series, somebody would have been murdered on the ship and and other people would have been lost at sea, you know? And maybe three of them would have made it to land, you know? Life isn't like that. It's interesting. Um, Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, has an interesting view on Daniel chapter 3 that I think relates here. If you don't know the book of Daniel it's in, in the Old Testament the first the first six chapters are narrative history it is absolutely wonderful read it sometime it's better than any script coming out of Hollywood I'm telling you the second six chapters of Daniel though you might need some help I did it's it's a little bit almost somebody once described it as a 60s acid trip it's not quite that okay but it is a little bit confusing Okay, but the first six chapters are wonderful. And in chapter 3, Daniel has three friends, Shad, three friends. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And and it's this chapter is all about his friends, not Daniel. And King Nebuchadnezzar, of course, of Babylon, and they're living in Babylon. And at the beginning of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar the king decides, all right, whenever the music in the city plays, everybody has to stop and bow down to me because I'm king and I need to see their loyalty. So the music would play and everybody would bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, even if he wasn't present. They bow down. Not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they, they, they understand what God has called them to and that is to not worship any other god or idol. So they won't bow down. That would be blaspheming Yahweh. So word gets back to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you bring those three guys here, and he's really angry, and they stand before Nebuchadnezzar, and he gives them another chance. He says, look, I got a guy with a zither and a a cymbal here, and they're going to play some music for you, and when that music plays, you need to bow down, and if you don't, see that furnace over there? I got this furnace over here to help me execute people I don't like. You're going to get thrown into that furnace, and you're going to be burned up. And here it is, in, 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 in verse 17, here's what they say to, to, to Nebuchadnezzar. They say, Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to save us from this furnace, O king. Our God is able to save us. And we go, yeah, yeah. But really, verse 18 is the key. Verse 18 is where they say what? But even if he does not save us, we're not going to bow down to you, O king, because we trust God. He's trustworthy. Well, Nebuchadnezzar got so mad that his face got contorted. And he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than it normally was, which in effect, in a sense was only doing them a favor because they'd die quicker. But that's how mad he was. And, and it was so hot that you would throw the guys in from the top of the furnace. The soldiers that took them up there to throw them in, they got burned up and died. That's how hot it was. They threw them in. And then Nebuchadnezzar goes and looks in through the side portal, and he sees the three guys walking around. Now he's like, all right, got to find out what the backstory is here. <laughs> you pull them out of there. okay? They come out, and not a hair is singed. There's no smell of smoke on them, nothing. And it's a wonderful, happy ending, because Nebuchadnezzar looks at them and says, now I know that the God that you worship is real. So it's a wonderful, happy ending ending here's tom's take on this story i wish they had burned up in the furnace and the reason is because we look at a story like that and then we begin to expect that god is going to pull us out of every furnace that we're in and he doesn't in fact most often what he does is he he's in there with us making us go through that there isn't always a happy ending and even for paul even for paul he's going to get to rome But then five years later, they're going to execute him. He's going to get out two years after he gets to Rome in 62, and he's going to travel a little bit more. Then he's going to get rearrested, and they're going to execute him in 65. So even for Paul, ultimately, in this world, it doesn't end well. Graham Cook, in his book, The Nature of God, writes this. There is no security in what God is doing. There is only security in who God is. You understand, we don't trust God because of what what he can do, although that's important. The reason we trust God is because of his character. It's his character that allows him to do what he does. And that's why we trust him. From God's point of view, he says it this way in Amos chapter 5. He says, seek me and live. He doesn't say, seek my church programs and live. Seek my projects and live. He says, seek me and live. Now, we're going to talk more about chapter 28 next week, but I'll give you a couple of highlights so that we can set it up. Malta is 700 miles west of their intended destination, like I mentioned. And they get to Malta, and, and in the first 10, chap- uh, 10 verses of chapter 28, there's this story of, of uh, Paul reaches into some wood, and there's a famous snake that inhabits Malta. They call it a viper. It's very dangerous, very poisonous. And and apparently one of these vipers clamps onto Paul's hand. And these vipers of Malta, once they clamp on, you can't get rid of them, and they kill you. The poison kills you. And the minute this happens to Paul, everybody who was on the ship, they see him now. He's got this viper there, and they know the viper, and they're going, okay, he's dead. And so here's what they all said. Here's what they all said. They said, ah, see, Paul is a murderer. He is guilty of these charges. God's getting him. God got the snake to bite him. And then what happens? Paul shakes the snake off. Oh, that's never happened before. Okay? And Paul lives. So two days later, now what are they, the same people who are saying he's a murderer, now what are they saying about Paul? He's a god. He's a god. This is not the first time in Acts that people thought he was a god. So, here you go, human beings are fickle. We're fickle. Our hearts are fickle. One day it's this, the next day it's that. One day we love the Cardinals, and then the next Sunday, mmm. Um... But in the important stuff, too. See, Jesus is a rock, He's the foundation, He's the cornerstone. He's where we build our lives. That's why we can trust him. They wait there for three months. They go on to Rome. Paul finds many friends there waiting for him. He finds, fi- uh, finds favor in the guards. Uh, the guards allow him to roam around wherever he wants to go. He talks to many people, he talks to a bunch of people he never would have been able to talk to um, uh, otherwise. And this is how it ends in verses 30 and 31. It seems kind of abrupt for the ending of a book. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Thanks, Luke. What happened next? Did, he, did, did Caesar release him? Where did he go? What happened? Did they execute him? Thanks a lot, Luke. What happened? Oh, and by the way, he's there for two years waiting. Apparently, Caesar had other things to do before he could see Paul. He's waiting another two years. That's four years now he's been waiting in prison. I think it's interesting that Ben... I I did not hear what Ben was going to say before he got up here. I, I didn't go over it with him or anything. And he talked about the faithful presence. He talked about God's people being faithfully present. And I have right here in my notes, faithful presence is often expressed in the unspectacular nature of ministry. So many of us come to Jesus and we think, we're going to have a spectacular ministry. Maybe even get on TV. Get a gold car. (laughs) You know? But but really, Christian ministry is is often kind of mundane, routine. It's writing a sermon every single week. It's meeting with people, and it's telling them about Jesus. Being a Christian is mostly unspectacular. How's that for a selling point for the church? But it's true. Here's here's another T-shirt I'm gonna I'm gonna make. Embrace the mundane. I think that'll sell really good. Embrace the mundane. I think it's funny that at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus says the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. And for many people, um, the way that's translated is Rome is the ends of the earth. Rome is the ends of the earth. You go to Rome, you're pretty much at, at the end, and that's where Paul is. But I said this as an abrupt ending, and, and a lot of people say, what about Acts 29? What, what is, well, Acts 29 is still being written. Do you realize that we are Acts 29. We're in Acts 29 right now. God was faithful to Paul. He's faithful to us. We can trust him. He's keeping his word to us. And Acts clearly shows us that the church has a mission and it is foundational to our identity. And that mission is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And not just that it's good news, but that it's true news. And that you can trust it and you can count on it. And that we need Jesus Let me end by saying this. We talk a lot about how we need Jesus and and crossing that line of faith and embracing Christ and coming to know Jesus. And you may be sitting here and not quite sure what that means. You you hear it, but you're not. You'd like to be able to ask some questions and and go deeper and figure that out. You know, we'd like to to participate in that with you. We're here to do that. We're going to have people standing in the wings. Uh, staff, deacons, elders, standing in the wings, if you want to ask them about that, you can always contact the office and set up a time to meet with some of us to talk. We would love to be able to talk to you. This is, here you go, this is the redemption version of a Southern Baptist altar call, okay? We're calling you to Jesus and saying, if you want to know about it, come come and talk to us. And we're not going to do a blood oath and we're not going to lock you in a room somewhere until you say yes. We're going (laughs) to some of you have had that experience with car dealers anyway, kidding in case there's a car dealer out there, anyway you get my point, I should shut up now let's pray together (laughs) Lord God we thank you for your word and it's truth and we just thank you for uh, showing us showing us that faithful presence is really important and that we can trust you because you keep your word so God I pray that that would empower us and that we would be Um, we would live in, in joyful, joyful response to you. God, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.